for a very long time, youth news has been deeply subjective, laden with swear words and mostly just talking about pop culture, really, with the idea that young people can't possibly grasp this very important subject matter. This week on Crawford Media, the co-founder of youth news publisher, The Daily Oz. I'm speaking to Zara Seidler, and she is going to give me an insight into the editorial strategy that has fueled explosive growth in the past couple of years. My name is Hal Crawford. Hello. I really enjoyed this conversation. What is so interesting about The Daily Oz is how it has stayed away from activism. So is there audience growth in objectivity? The Daily Oz is an experiment that is still underway. Zara, thanks very much for joining me today. How do you describe The Daily Oz? We describe it as a social first news service for young people. Specifically, I believe that means that you are Instagram heavy. Is that right? That's correct. The idea behind it is that we're meeting young people where they're at, which is on social media. So we're not driving them off platform anywhere else, but really keeping them on those social channels. How did you actually come to start The Daily Oz? It was a couple of years ago and my co-founder Sam had this great idea for something that would be called The Daily Oz, but we he didn't know at least at that time what it would be or what it would look like. But he had this idea that he just wanted to create news that existed on social media. He thought that it was missing. So he put a call out on a social media platform. We can't agree which one it was. It's that many years ago, but asking for someone to do it with him. Turned out I was the only one that responded. We had never met, but we went for coffee all those years ago and thought about how we wanted to create a new service that would be for our friends. At that point, I was in my early 20s and none of my friends were engaging with traditional or legacy news. And from that coffee grew a great friendship and a business that's mission has remained consistent all these years. And how many years ago was it? It was about five years ago now, which is just remarkable given I'm only 25. So that's a big portion of my life. (laughs) Tell me, how did it feel? Did it feel like you were stepping into a void? The feeling was that it was important work. We felt like it was from the get-go that it resonated with our friends. And honestly, it wasn't much more than that. Nobody else knew about it, cared about it, wanted to talk about it. But even the fact that we were engaging our closest friends really um, with the news, current affairs, politics felt important, but it was by no means in my mind at least ever going to become a business that wasn't what I had in my plan of life. So it, it really took me by surprise that we have ended up where we are now. And uh, I, I have listened to a few interviews with you and read a bit about you and you, both you and Sam say, we're not journalists, but <laughs> I suppose that's changed now, hasn't it? I don't know. It's semantics, but I think that we have employed a lot of excellent journalists who do and practice the craft of journalism. I still think, especially now that we have a team and I've stepped away from writing those posts every single day, that I'm still a bit of a slashy and that I'm not <laughs> not one thing. But yeah, I've always felt weird about that label. I never studied journalism. I worked briefly for a year or so at Sky News. But beyond that, I read the news and that was about it. I never studied journalism either. Not that I 
think that journalism education is unnecessary, but it certainly isn't necessary to become a journalist. It's not. It's interesting, though, because I think I had a bit of a complex about it. But then now in my hiring of journalists, I am really eager to find people from outside of those really traditional settings. And like one of our first very big hires was an economist who had worked for the Treasury Department and then for the Grattan Institute. And so he didn't come from that traditional journalism background, but he is just absolutely phenomenal at explaining and breaking down political and economic concepts. And I think that it's great to look outside the box and find those people. What's his name? His name is Tom Crowley. So are you set up like a newsroom? Are you the editor-in-chief? I'm not. I have Billy Fitzsimons, who is our editor and our guru, and she is wonderful. So she has about five years under her belt working at Mamma Mia. And so she is the editor. And then we have a couple of journalists and a podcast producer and video producers, and they all answer to her. And Sam and I try and build this thing and think about what's next on a daily basis and don't always have the answers. And uh, do you ever step in editorially anymore? Yeah, I do. I do. It's always good for there to be multiple brains working on any one thing. So, for example, we're producing a new podcast series called The Mirror at the moment, and it's been good to just dip in and out of that when necessary to provide some guidance and backup for the team. I had to listen to the first episode. It's really good. It's obviously quite high production values. I think that there are points that we really try to, like inflection points in the nation's history and certainly events. And so we see the 10-year anniversary of Julia Gillard's misogyny speeches as an important point because a lot of our audience are really young and so they only have really experienced more of that more recent kind of uprising as such. And so we're just trying to do as much as we can knowing the age of our audience and what we think is important for them to know. Yeah, so I guess you would have been about 15 when I um, was. <laughs> I was. When yes. Julia did that that speech in parliament, but you would have been aware of it at that time, I assume. I was, but it's so fascinating listening back now and creating the mirror that there is just a world that I was not aware of. I was in school. I wasn't following what was happening with Peter Slipper. I wasn't following what was happening with Tony Abbott. I think that certainly looking back has created a whole lot of perspective that I was missing as, do you call a 15-year-old a teenager? A teenager. It certainly felt like a historical moment when the Prime Minister Mm -hmm. gave that speech. It, It had that feeling actually in the moment. But a lot has changed since then culturally, I think. Would you agree? I think that a lot has changed, but a lot has also stayed the same. And I think that we have started to hear, and certainly where we want the trajectory of this podcast to go, is that we have started to hear the stories of people that were not speaking out in the past, but that they are not new experiences. They're just experiences that are being spoken about for the first time. And so I think that that is central to how we have considered it, but also we wanted to end on a note of lightness and, like you said, acknowledge that there has been a lot that has been done, especially when it comes to diversity in parliament and how we think about intersectional feminism as well. Your news is very much straight down the line news. Is that right or do you inject any sort of elements of subjectivity and activism in there? No, so that what you have said is music to my ears because that is fundamental to what we do. We have always tried and insisted that we remain in the centre providing the facts because I think that for a very long time youth news has been 
deeply subjective, laden with swear words and mostly just talking about pop culture really with the idea that young people can't possibly grasp this very important subject matter. And so we saw a gap in the market of doing hard news that was delivered down the middle. And I think that for us, it's that we can create this foundation of knowledge for young people to then go out and seek those opinions because there's certainly no shortage of you know, op-ed writing out there, but we didn't feel the need to create that. It's fascinating to me that you said that you identified a gap in the market in objective news and also that you achieved pretty strong growth in that gap, young demo, but straight down the middle news. And now you're at, what, 400,000 Instagram followers? Yeah. And are they mostly Australian, those followers? Yes, I think it's something like 95% Australian Mm. and then the 5% to our knowledge, just expats. So tell me, because you're called the Daily Oz and you very much are objective news with an Australian accent, is that a sort of a cap on your growth or do do you want to go international or do you want to get bigger reach inside Australia? Look, it's the constant talking point in this office. I think that we certainly have not reached our full potential here. I think that for us, we want to be the biggest youth newsroom in the country. We want to have a team that is just brimming with young talent and who services a really large portion of the young community. So I think we've got a lot of work to do here first, but we do want to see if it will work overseas. We've spoken about potentially going over to the UK or to the US because really for us it's testing this idea of is this kind of straight down the middle youth focused, social first, uniquely Australian proposition, or is it something that we can ship off overseas? And for me, I I studied briefly for a time in the US and uh, the the hyper-partisanship there and certainly the reflection of that in the media, I think, is terrifying. And I personally don't know whether something like what we have would work there, given the consumption habits of young Americans and what they're used to. So it would be an experiment, but it's definitely something we're open to down the road. Also in the evolutionary world of news, there seems to be a force pushing outlets to partisanship. I've seen it especially with subscription-based businesses. You know, you're rewarded for taking a side effectively and preaching to the converted. Do you feel that at all? We don't feel that way. We, and I guess this opens up the conversation of our business model, but we work with advertisers who are values aligned with us and with our audience. And so there's no external pressure to to pick a side, but there are some things like climate that perhaps you could say we are taking a position on, which is that we will always view climate through the lens of science. And for some reason that has become a political talking point. That business model, how many people has it managed to sustain? How big's your team? So we're a team of 13 full-time. Everyone is a young person in our team, most of whom are in their first or second full-time jobs. And we work out of an office in Sydney and are really trying to build up this newsroom feeling. So actually in the same place physically? Yeah. Yeah, which is shocking to a lot of people, but we re- we really enjoy each other's company and we cover some heavy things and we work long hours and it's made easier by being in each other's company. No one is forced to come in, but we have a full office every day. 
Yeah, I think that's just such an advantage. It is. And I mean, when when things like the Queen dying or whatever it might be, it's a lot easier to shout across the room than it is to pick up the phone and call someone. So when you're trying to work in that fast-paced environment, we found that it works really well for us. Yeah, yeah. And that excitement is infectious. So yeah, now back to that business model, you're purely advertising driven or do you accept contributions as well? No, we're purely advertising driven. I must say that we raised capital. We've now raised capital twice from external investors. And I think it's important to highlight that because I think that there's often an unspoken thing when it comes to startups that no one's really open about things. So we would have never gone full-time, Sam and I, had we not had the financial backing of external investors. But we're in an incredible position that we've got a great kind of very diverse team of investors who allow us and are certainly contractually obliged to allow us to have full editorial independence, but then can help Sam whenever he has any commercial kind of questions or queries, because that's the side of the business he takes care of. I am more editorial focused, but he's doing this for the first time. He was an M&A lawyer previously, so none of us have any idea how to build a business. So it's good to have those kind of external forces to rely on. But we, we raised capital in February of last year. Sam and I both went full-time and then we started growing the team, but we were certainly in a pre-revenue stage at that point. And now we have grown really healthy month-on-month revenue through advertising, but we don't do native advertising. So we don't ever embed it in content, news content, certainly, which is what a lot of other youth news outlets do. And it's a huge moneymaker and there's certainly a place for it, but that's not what we do. So we do really clear advertising with partners that we have chosen. And then another kind of point that we are trying to um, experiment with is this research and polling arm, which is that we have access to 400,000 young people and we can put up a poll on Instagram and get upwards of 90,000 results overnight. And we recognize that is a huge thing to have access to. Do you sell on a sort of a CPM basis or some other kind of basis? (laughs) I do none of the selling, but Sam and Tara, our partnerships lead, that's how they do it. A lot of advertisers have been, I'd say, conditioned to understand the relationship with media to be this native advertising relationship. And they always want to know what more they can do, what more they can do, how else they can get in front of audiences. So it's an interesting position for Sam and Tara to be in that they're saying a lot more no's than they are yeses. But for us, trust is the most important commodity. We have thankfully the position we're in means that we don't have to accept every kind of commercial partnership left, right and centre. Was it scary when you were contemplating taking investment? It wasn't, it wasn't scary because I simply had no idea what I was doing. It was such a foreign world to me. I was working in government relations at the time. My kind of only engagement with the commercial world was through a government lens. So that was all I knew. And so when we were talking about taking on investment, I think for me, it was an unknown and that was reflected in our conversation. Sam did a lot of the talking, but that has now balanced out nicely. I just didn't know what we were entering into. But then a couple of weeks after we quit our jobs and started full-time on the Daily Oz, Facebook took news off its platform and that was terrifying because we were in a position of we've just taken a lot of money from a lot of people and could this spell the end of our grand experiment before we've even started? 
Mm, that was the that was the kerfuffle around the introduction of the news media bargaining code, wasn't it? Yes, it was that kerfuffle, and it was absolutely terrifying. We were sitting on the floor of an investor's office because at that point, obviously, we had no office and had no idea what we were doing, and we decided there and then to launch a newsletter so that if news was taken off Instagram or if the code in whatever form it was in was expanded, that we would at least be protected. So it was this idea of the rented versus the owned audience and we knew then Mm. that we needed to really play into having an owned audience. I suppose that you feel that quite strongly still because I would say that you're still probably pretty heavily dependent on Instagram. Is that right? That is right. It's something that we are actively working on. So big pushes for newsletter, for other platforms. But we've always said that we are platform agnostic and that hopefully we are building this relationship with our audience. And what about the audience size? Do you reckon 400 is a cap or can you grow it further? God, no. I mean, there's 400,000 and we don't know a whole lot about where they're at beyond knowing the states that they're in. But I'd hazard a guess to say that it is very urban-centric and so I think we have a big job ahead of us of trying to engage rural and regional youth as well because it grew out of Bondi where Sam and I live and it's grown around us with people we know telling people they know but we need a really concerted push to engage younger rural and regional audiences because I don't think that we've even touched that group yet. Yeah, I'm interested in that and how that interacts with your editorial positioning. For example, Shit You Should Care About, Lucy Blackiston, who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago on on this podcast, I think they definitely have a Lucy Agusia editorial yeah. tone and there might be a bit of swearing and <laughs> quite a lot of cultural references and so forth. Yeah. So less straight. I have no value judgment. I see these as editorial positioning in a market. Definitely. And also, as Lucy made clear to me when we spoke, they grew on the back of, I think it was Black Lives Matter, Mm. they grew something like a million in a month. It's absurd. It's It's amazing. Yeah. And it was an international audience. So it looks great for bragging rights, but potentially (laughs) not very useful to monetize. Yeah. What's your thinking about that dynamic versus what you guys are doing? I think what you've said is entirely correct, that there's a place for both of them, but that our value is in that delivery of hard news. For us, what we think about is could we build out other verticals? There is a lot of interest in sport. There is a lot of interest in the arts and whether or not we try create a catch-all, the Daily Oz catch-all that includes all of those things or whether we just stick with what we know, which is that hard news. So that's something we think about. And another potential uh competitor would be pedestrian and they're a bit more sweary too. Yeah. And I I think uh, like the pedestrians and the junkies of the world really ruled the early 2000s. And for my brother's generation, that was what they knew of youth news. But if we look at what they do now, it is pretty different to what we do. There's a lot of positions being taken. And again, there's absolutely a place for that, but we don't see ourselves mirroring that take. So You mentioned brothers. Yes. There is this coincidence that Lucy has a whole mess of brothers as well. She grew up in a house of brothers. You grew up in a house of brothers. Are we seeing any sort of parallels here? You know what? I've been thinking about this a lot. I often get asked in podcast interviews about imposter syndrome and about this idea, or at least having a gendered lens on confidence and 
reflecting on where you're at. And I do think that my brothers have played a very big role in me feeling very confident about myself and where I'm at and in my abilities. Because I think when you live with three very loud, confident, intelligent people, you you do mirror those attributes. And I think that there is something to be said for the, the women who rise to the top of certain industries do take on a lot of masculine attributes, or at least what I've seen of certain industries, indeed in politics. But I think it's changing. And I think that having the next generation like Lucy come through who are changing the game is amazing. You have to make decisions about where to invest. Yeah. Tell me video versus audio. What are your thoughts? Where are you going to use video? Where are you going to use audio? It's a great question and it's really difficult to answer because video is a huge investment. And the problem with that huge investment is that social platforms don't privilege longer form video anymore. They're really pushing short videos. And so we have an incredible team of two who create these amazing long videos that are in-depth explorations of things. And they'll just absolutely not work on the grid on Instagram. People will not be served them by the algorithm. And so it's trying to reconcile the, the input versus the output and how that will be, I guess, seen by our audience. So it's a constant struggle. I think that In my mind, I thought audio was easier. Now producing this short mirror series, I see that perhaps I underestimated the amount of work that goes into it. Yeah, yeah. You know, what you say about long videos and that you can sink a lot of work into a, say, a five-minute video and it's still a single link. They can be real productivity holes. Our head of video is just the most phenomenally talented human being I've ever met and he's a bit older than us and has had just an amazing career working across the world at different channels and outlets and so trying to work with him on how do we actually mimic both habits of our young readers, but then also push the boundaries a bit. And we don't have to always accept that short-term videos are the only way that we'll do Mm. it and we can Mm. push it a bit. The tyranny of TikTok. (laughs) But I love it. I love TikTok so much. I think it is a discovery platform and I have learnt more on that platform than I have on any other. And I think that's the special quality of TikTok among all its shortcomings. I do think that there is a lot of value to be derived from there. When you say learnt more, learnt more about what? Everything. The things that I didn't even know I could learn about, like how to cook, how to big news events that you now have people like Matilda at The Guardian breaking down in really engaging ways. It's just everything, how to clean things, new music. That's a big thing for me that I've found a lot of new music through TikTok and I love that, but it is a black hole. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is probably circling back to something that I should have talked about earlier or asked you about earlier, the news media bargaining code. Just to so you're clear on my position, I've always thought it was terrible legislation. (laughs) Tell me what you think. Is the news media bargaining code a good thing? I think that from my point of view, it just entrenched uh, the power dynamics that exist within the media industry, which is to say that the big guys got more money and no one else got anything. And the fact that we had to have this collective bargaining of the smaller media outlets who never get any money, who are never recognised, I think was a really sad outcome from legislation that probably could have done a good thing. And for us, we would never be involved in something like that. We don't drive people elsewhere off platform anywhere. So we're not intimately involved with it. But I just think that 
if nothing else, it just entrenched the completely unequal relationship between legacy media and newer publishers. Mm. Where are you heading? You've got investors. You've Mm -hmm. been introduced to this strange world of people who give you money so that they can make more money down the line. Our number one thing is audience growth. We, it's what we sold as the golden thing to our investors and told them that if they weren't interested, then they probably shouldn't sign on because we weren't going to be making millions and millions of bucks immediately and that our biggest focus was going to be growing that audience. And that remains true now as it was, you know, in February 2021. And like I said, it's about reaching new audiences that are underserviced, especially rural and regional audiences. It's about getting that younger demographic now, like I'm 25 and there's a whole host of 18 to 25s who just don't exist on Instagram anymore and primarily are on TikTok and Snapchat. So we need to be getting into schools and speaking to those younger students. What about you personally? Just focus on all of the above. I think that it's been an interesting year for Sam and I because it's balancing external commitments with kind of building internal capacity and increasingly doing a lot more of the outward-facing work of speaking and panels and, you know, these sorts of things, and that's amazing. It's a balancing act, but we've just got to try and get it right. Thanks so much for speaking to me, Zara. Thank you so much for having me, Hal. So to recap, a business based on objective news for young audiences served on Instagram and born over a cup of coffee five years ago. As usual, the daily old story underlines the idea that ideas per se don't matter. It's all about the execution. Doing it day after day, consistent output and clarity of purpose, that's what matters. Well, that's the end of the sermon from me, Hal Crawford. Bye for now.